back into this. Uh, uh, okay, let's. I want to talk about this one real quick. I want to really narrow in on Cyril right now. Someone Wikipedia him real quick and give me his dates. Give me his dates just so we know where we're at. 376 to 444. Yep, 376 to 444. So he covers the Council of Ephesus, 431. When is the Council of Chalcedon? Nope, that's Constantinople, 51. That's right, so he dies just before Chalcedon, even though a lot of his ideas inform Chalcedon. Right, so just kind of putting in... Yeah, we're just sort of putting him into kind of a historical setting real quick. Uh, just to, I, I, as you notice, right, as you notice, I try to be as pastoral as I can with some of this stuff. And on other times, I, I want you to be the best academic you can be, right? Really trying to hone in and trying to rally that, those two drums. Well, guess what? You're about to see my academic wheelhouse right now. Um, uh, in the New Testament, Hebrews and Matthew are my wheelhouse. In the Fathers, if we're looking at a person in particular, it's Cyril. If we're looking at a topic in particular, it's scriptural exegesis meets Trinitarian theology. Like, as an academic, there are still some holes in my Trinitarian vision of, of what's happening altogether. Um, but I hope, as you've seen of what we've talked about so far, like we've talked a lot about the Trinity, and there's still more that we didn't talk about here um, that I could navigate. It's Christology that is really difficult once we hit the fifth and sixth centuries. That's where a lot of the controversies then turn, um, and it's pretty difficult. Uh, one thing I don't want to put on the screen or, or pass around, uh, I'll I'll have someone here. Let me do this. I'm going to pass around two items real quick. I'll, I'll put this on the screen. I won't put this on the screen, but I'll put, I'll put this on the screen. Here. I'm going to pass these around. I, please don't take pictures of them. But I want to talk about them uh, as, as, you, um, as you look and peruse through them. Connor, would you mind? Uh, look as much as you want, then say, great, not for me, and then continue. So in patristic studies, uh, ready for this? In English, we probably have about 40% of the volume. Right, which is bad. Southern had a really good patristics library. Uh, I didn't realize this when I was there. I realized it probably my last year there. We had a couple patristic key scholars come um, and they're like, this is one of the best libraries over here. And so I took advantage of my last year there, just trying to figure out, my goodness, what is here? I didn't realize that. Goodness, where is this? There it is. Um, no, I'm going to describe that here in a moment. I'm trying to get this up for the people on the screen. There we go. Oh. Okay, right here. So one of the things that I did for my thesis is provide a full translation on Cyril's Dialogues on the Trinity. It doesn't exist in English. Now, uh, I just caught wind. <laughs> this is the life of scholarship. Oh, my gosh. I just caught wind about two months ago uh, that it, someone did it, and it's being published soon. So that just happened. Right, right. I have an English translation. The English translation is totally loose. It's not readable yet. If you open it up, it's there's tons of markings in it. Uh, that's just life, right? That's just life. And so, but what what I'm doing is I'm reflecting on this text in particular for my next kind of big book, big project. Um, <clears throat> and. Dialogues on the Trinity. Like, talk about a work that you would expect to already be translated. And it's not, right? And it's not. Uh, 
go ahead and commit. If scholarship is in your future, scholarship is in your future and you're catching the bug, patristic theology, patristic texts, get into the habit of just doing small translation small translations. This was one of the hardest things that I've ever translated. I, even though it'll, it'll never see the light of day in terms of publication, the amount of riches and resources that came about because of this just greatly grew my appreciation of what to do with the text, uh, how to handle it. I felt like I learned more about this text walking through that process than I did just reading an English text. Translation forces you sort of slow down, slow way down. So with any work, you, you want to be able to properly insert it in terms of its, where does it fit historically? So that's the other article that's sitting on top of it. It's just, that was my attempt of just be like, okay, where is this situated? Um, in, in no, no, no. Someone provide someone has already provided a translation of this, so I can't do anything with my thing. No, yeah, why? Like there's there's no need of having two translations. It's not really like the scriptures where you're like, I got an NIV. Oh, I got it. There are. And that, that's what I'll have to wait and see. Yeah. And it's just like, I'm not it, it's hard. It's hard to produce a readable translation. Like if you were to read this, you'd be like, oh, this isn't. You got to do more work. Like there's still so much more work to be done. And that might be my lot. My lot might not be translation work. It's really hard. There are really good translators in the field that just put my work to shame. And so I'm just trying to be honest about it enough. If, um, but to be able to put that in your purview, if this is sort of catching this bug, um, learn Greek enough to know how to translate. Learn Latin enough to know how to translate. Why? This would just be a service to the field. It would be a service to the field. Imagine opening up the world of English-speaking scholarship to this work that no one right now can read. No one right now can read. This is one of the first times that it's hit uh, English uh, cover to cover. Um, I'm really looking forward to the translation that came out. I had to like go through a mourning process. <laughs> it was like a week and a half. I'm like, what was I doing with the past year and a half of my life? Uh, however, the, the actual work of doing that was a real um, eye-opening process. It, it, it got me really acquainted, really acquainted with Cyril himself in ways that reading his literature didn't. So just, just trying to put a small vision in front of me. That's all that I'm trying to do. Even with my own weaknesses, just even not trying to, you know, uh, put, pull wool over your eyes, even with my own as a scholar, I, I know that there's that there are people that can walk circles around me on some of this stuff, and uh, just want to be really open and honest about some of my limitations. But nonetheless, this was a really good venture. And I, if people are interested in translation work, I would be more than happy uh, to share more of how to get into that. Um, okay, can we jump into the last item? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yes. So different. Let me just be really honest real quick. Comparatively, the New Testament reads like a children's book. Once you start comparing it to outside literature, Greek uh, in the, the Matthew to um, Revelation, so simple. So simple compared to stuff outside. Yeah, uh, Hellenization, right? The process of Hellenization. You have um, multi-languages uh, multi in a given area. So it's non-native speakers trying to write in Greek. Uh, you have John, which is what? By vocation. Fisherman, not educated, right? So there's multiple factors in that. Imagine being in Alexandria, where Greek is the prominent language, Coptic is another language, which is a Greek option. Not only that, you're trained in philosophy, you're now trained at the university, you're now trained in multiple uh, items within Greek itself, it's gonna affect what you do. 
And so here you have a fisherman writing Greek versus a person who has gone through the university Greek philosophy. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There, mm -hmm. It doesn't affect inerrancy. Yeah. Paul is still pretty uh, insufficient comparatively. I know. Complex. Uh-huh. 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 I am more or less talking about syntax, right? Greek, actual Greek grammar, not the content in the Greek. Um, yeah, their Greek grammar is far more complex. This was the hardest Greek. Right, I've joked around about Amphilochius. If I ever get a chance to teach PhD patristic Greek here, I'll, I will put Amphilochius in front of this and I'll be like, I don't know how to do this. I want to see if you can. Because <laughs> I can't. This was the hardest Greeks I've ever, Greek text I've ever seen in my life. Yes, so the sources Critiones, uh, Critianus, uh, uh, that is a that's a critical text. So there's a translation in that sources Critiones uh, that is a critical edition whereby it provides a critical Greek text and then a French translation. So when you're doing research languages, whether they're the more dead languages or they're modern mm -hmm. research languages like in French, mm -hmm. you're not necessarily learning. Are there specific classes where you're learning those languages for the academy as opposed to like taking, you know, college Spanish where they're actually learning how to have conversations? Yes, yeah. You don't care whether or not you have conversations. No. My reading, my reading abilities in German versus my speaking abilities in German, it's just like they're not even compared. I can't. I can barely, I could not hold a conversation in German at all. You could pick up mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with helps, right? With helps, yeah, with helps. Yep. Okay, good. Is that helpful? Hope that helps you, Chris, especially walking down this mat. I know you're sort of tinkering, Darren. I know you're tinkering with this. Um, any questions on that process? I'd just love to just share my own failures as well or my own things learned along the way. Good, Aaron, you're good? Yep, good. Okay, let's keep rolling. So here is a, let's dive a little bit deeper into Cyril. Who can read this Greek term right here? What's that Greek term? Cairo. Not Cairo. What is the final letter? Kairos. It's a sigma. Yep, it's a sigma. Kairos. What is Kairos? Translate it. Translate it. What is Kairos? Lord? Time. Yeah, time. Uh, time, it's a temporal term. Uh, Cyril will use it for the language of season. Cyril will use this word for the language of season. So what is really interesting here in this next kind of lecture that we're going to walk through, this is a paper that I've, that I've written uh, for a journal. So it's going to have less of an auditory sound and more probably of a of an academic feel. That's just the, that's the life I live in Cyril, so it'll probably feel that way uh, comparatively. Um, the, just to kind of give us a quick heads up, quick heads up, Philippians 2. Philippians 2 and the Philippian hymn serve as a Christological exegetical rule. In other words, when he's doing Christological exegesis, Philippians 2 is constantly, constantly a hermeneutical lens by which he's reading Christological texts. And to use kairos in this, how many seasons of the sun are present in the Philippian hymn? One, two, three, or four seasons. There are three seasons. Who, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God, but what? Descended, took on human flesh, crucified, died, resurrected, ascended, now in heaven. Three seasons. 
the eternal son, the incarnate son, the exalted son. So that Philippian hymn serves as an exegetical grid for Cyril in this scriptural exegesis, exegetical process. Uh, so then, so then he will constantly talk about the three seasons of the sun, the three seasons of the sun in uh, just to sort of give us a, a vision of what's coming to try to anticipate what's coming in this, uh, in this article uh, is what modern scholars have called partitive exegesis, partitive exegesis. I'm going to go through and talk about how it's a two-nature exegesis. Uh, Cyril, rather than looking at Christological ontology, will look at the seasonal, excuse me, will look at the seasonal movements of the sun. Okay. Interrupt at any time and say, I have no idea what that So keep in mind, this is an article about scriptural exegesis with an attempt to have a close eye to the dialogues on the Trinity, this work, and then uh, Athanasius. Scriptural exegesis accompanied a culture of pro-Nicene theology and early Christian Trinitarian discourse. Ways of reading scripture influenced early Christian theological grammar. So in this way, Pro-Nicene scriptural exegesis and theology mutually reinforced one another. The pro-Nicene heritage curated a theological culture to uphold and to be influenced by a scriptural habitus. And so, theology and exegesis reside in a symbiotic relationship mutually to serve and uphold the other. In other words... In modern exegesis, it's often exegesis informs theology. In antiquity, it's both and. Exegesis informs theology and theology informs exegesis. Partitive exegesis, it's a term that I'm going to be using, so it's really important for us to define it. That's what I'm doing right here. Partitive exegesis functions as one of the many scriptural moves made by early Christian thinkers, and in particular, it functions as a central feature for pro-Nicene, Trinitarian, and Christological exegesis. <clears throat> in the oikonomia of God's activities, how might one describe the incarnate Son using the scriptures to affirm a pro-Nicene Christology? Maurice Wiles labels partitive exegesis as two-nature exegesis. According to John Baer's lengthy definition, partitive exegesis distinguishes between Nicene and non-Nicene theology that simply hinges upon the son's two natures. John Baer says this, the issue between the Nicenes and the non-Nicenes is a matter of exegesis. Both sides took scripture as speaking of Christ or about Christ. For Nicenes, on the other hand, Scripture speaks throughout of Christ, the Christ of the Kerygma, the crucified and exalted Lord, and speaks of him in a twofold fashion, demanding in turn a partitive exegesis. That is, here's the definition. Some things are said of him as divine, and some things are said of him as human, yet referring to the same Christ throughout. That's partitive exegesis. That's what's known as that. Lars Kaon describes how Cyril assigns items proper to the Son's divine and human nature. Partitive exegesis is a reading method that illustrates the Son in a twofold manner to register what is proper to the human son and proper to the divine son. 
This twofold manner of speaking about the Son does not convey two sons, but proposes a twofold mode of describing what is proper for the two natures of the Son. Therefore, parted of exegesis offers an interpreter grammar to speak about the Son in a non-univocal manner. Question so far. Question so far, are you tracking? Maybe. <laughs> it's totally okay if you're not. Uh, you can tell that this doesn't read like a, one of my normal lectures. It, it's, it, it's an article. Go for it. So was Cyril one of the earliest of part of it? No. He offers a more mature version. Uh, Athanasius, what I'm, what I'm about to argue is, is try to argue for something that originates in Athanasius. Athanasius might have picked it up from something else. Uh, but he claims Athanasius in an earlier work, just before the dialogues, uh, Thesaurus, Cyril's Thesaurus, it's essentially a close reading of one of Athanasius' works. So in Cyril's mind, he gets this process from Athanasius. Doing okay so far? Doing okay so far? Okay. In Cyril's. A Cyril of Alexandria's Trinitarian literature, before the Nestorian controversy, he mentions a tripart reading strategy as one way to describe his partitive reading strategy. This tripart rule attends to the time, kairos, to the person, prosopon and quite generally, the thing or the material problem. So, this rule is not original to Cyril and most likely reveals his affinity for Athanasius, from whom Cyril acquired this rule. So this tripart rule, this tripartite rule does this. When is the text of what person is the text about and what things do the text describe about the person? So pragma is a very generic term that he'll use in multiple ways. When he's talking about the incarnation, there's going to be multiple pragmas or pragmata uh, to convey the two natures. This tripart, tripartite rule, in fact, precedes Athanasius. While the two theologians use it differently, Athanasius highlights how this rule is proven in Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2 and delimits the two beginnings of the Son in Proverbs 8. The Son eternally begotten of the Father and the Son finitely created of a virgin. On the other hand, Cyril underscores this rule predominantly in the dialogues to describe three consecutive states of the Son in Philippians 2. So that's why I was trying to prep us ahead of time. Cyril will argue for three Chiroi, the Eternal Son, the Incarnate Son, the Exalted Son. I actually think that that's a helpful way to go about Christological exegesis. People get confused, right? Here we go. This will help safeguard us. How many are in your church go straight to the Gospels and say that that's what the Son does eternally? Right? We're in a different season. Here's where it gets in trouble. I always do what the Father tells me, and I submit to the Father. Right? That happens in the Gospel of John. So it's odd for us sometimes to say, but that's not what the Son does eternally. Right? So do you see that? So what we're doing then, we have the most amount of literature about the sun in a 30-year window that does not describe the sun what he always does eternally. That's what Cyril is trying to get us out of. Okay. In his early Trinitarian literature, Cyril displays both pro-Nicene Trinitarian commitments and a particular set of patterns to read Scripture. The thesaurus, circa 414, displays high amounts of dependency upon Athanasius and includes catenae of scripture. Second, 
The Dialogues on the Trinity, circa 420, notes an informal dialogue between Hermias, an Arian interlocutor, and Cyril. Then the commentary on John 425 displays his dogmatic exegesis of the Gospel of John. As Cyril uses this threefold strategy in his Trinitarian literature, a few questions arise. To what end does Cyril use this tripartite pattern? What type of symmetry exists between Cyril and Athanasius? And more proper to the following argument, what scriptural controls might Cyril provide that exhibit this tripartite rule? Okay, so for those that write papers, if you've noticed something that I've done, paragraph one was the topic, paragraph two was setting up the scene, paragraph three was raising questions, so then paragraph four, my thesis. It's kind of a helpful pattern to follow. I got that pattern from uh, Booth, the craft of research, and I've used it ever since the middle of my PhD program. Craft of Research by Booth. To these sets of questions, I detail how Kairos serves as an initial principle for Cyril to address the prosopon and pragma within the tripartite rule. He uses Kairos as a first principle to determine which of the three seasonal positions that the sun resides or the time reference of the scripture text. Using the Philippian hymn, using the Philippian hymn as a scriptural proof text for such a rule, Cyril uses Kairos to delimit the apocal position of the sun before commenting upon the pragma of the prosopon. So in other words, kairos, to determine the time of the sun, is the first principle. To do that then enables you to then speak well about the proper person and then the proper natures attached to that person. Cyril derives three kairoi from the Philippian hymn, that features a threefold spatial and temporal division of the sun's station. Epic one, the eternal mon monogenes in the heavens. Epic two, the incarnated sun and the kenosis on the earth. Epic three, the exalted sun in the heavens. Then and only then, Cyril will delimit what is proper, pragma, to the sun, prosopon, according to each season, kairos. In this way, Cyril stresses a hermeneutical taxis that attends first to the season of the sun before noting the features proper to the sun. The argument then that follows has three distinct moves. So here's then my methodology, right, for those that are following along proper paper. The argument has three distinct moves. First, defines Athanasius's use of the tripartite rule in almost exclusive relation to Proverbs 8 and Hebrews 1 and 3. Second, the tripartite rule in Cyril's Trinitarian literature, predominantly in the dialogues, will be shown to give prominence to Kairos as a hermeneutical first principle to situate how to detail the qualities of the sun and then third, the article concludes by defining kairos as apocal exegesis, which serves as a first principle Cyril's partitive reading strategy. Any questions so far? Any questions so far? Do you understand the type of argument that I'm trying to put forward? Hopefully. If it's flying right over your head, that's not a good thing. <laughs> that means I'm not being clear. <laughs> but I hope what it does mean is that it's starting to show that patristic exegesis is more complex than just simply fanciful exegesis, right? That's part of my, what I would like to communicate.
Rather, for Cyril, exegesis informs theology and theology informs exegesis. His classical pro-Nicene paradigm is forcing him to read the Philippian hymn in a particular way. But in Cyril's mind, the Philippian hymn proves Nicaea. Do you see that interrelationship? Okay, any questions so far? Hopefully you feel how heady this is compared to what we've previously done. Uh, the reason is, is the other stuff is written for a lecture. This is actually written for a journal. So it's gonna have a little bit of a headier type of feel to it. Those that go to conferences, especially those that are in academia, ETS, SBL, and NAPS, North American Patristic Society. I'm the, uh, one of the conference uh, coordinators of NAPS. Uh, go ahead and look that up. It's an international uh, patristic society. If you're a, uh, a master's THM student, you can present research there. So I would encourage you to do that if you're thinking of patristics. ETS at large is strictly for evangelical theology. And then SBL has no confession, but it is the international conference of, of scholarship on the Bible. You'll get a variety of people there of every, every persuasion ever. It's very open. Okay, tripartite rule appears in Athanasian anti-Arian exegesis. He often wards off Arian readings and to explain why, he will highlight the kairos, prosopon, and then Athanasius is inconsistent. He'll either talk about the pragma, the kreia, or the dionia of a text. So then Proverbs 8, Hebrews 1, and Hebrews 3 serve proper, uh, serve as proper proof texts for Athanasius in this process. To read scripture text Christologically, he first alludes to the kairos and then varies between attending to the prosopon or the pragma. The incarnation for Athanasius serves as a fulcrum of the sun's seasons. In this way, he'll make a proper distinction between the sun eternal and the sun incarnate before commenting upon the pragma of the sun. If you picked up on the illusion that I just left with, Athanasius doesn't have a category for Epic 3. Athanasius does not have that category. That is a category proper to Syria. Athanasius first uses the tripartite rule in orations against the Arians, book one. He begins by noting the rule and then lists several positive and negative uses of the rule. For Athanasius, the rule wards off errant readings regarding the sun, quoting Hebrews 1.4. Athanasius alludes to how this rule can tend to proper readings of the scripture. Quote, now it is right and necessary as in all divine scripture to hear faithfully, to expound the time of which the apostle wrote and the, the person and the point lest the reader from ignorance missing either these or any similar particular may be uh, wide of the true sense. So according to Athanasius, this threefold rule can explain all of divine scripture, kairos, asapon, then pragma. The reader will be led astray if they miss or become ignorant of these three items. Okay. This goes back to a, a mantra we did early on. Trinitarian theology is just as much a debate about ideas as it is a debate about reading scripture, right? This is all about a proper reading of scripture. So for Athanasius, what is wrong with the Arians is that they don't do this pattern. If they would see this exegetical pattern, they wouldn't be where they're at. Right, that would sort of be kind of a very quick summary. Okay, we doing okay so far? Doing okay so far? Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, so I mean, I looked up the Hebrews 1-4 text. Yep. Try to see what he was doing. Yeah, um, yep. And I don't really get it. 
Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Go ahead and read it for us. Read yeah. Hebrews 1 for us. Uh, having become as much superior to the angels as a name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Yep. Okay. Now, that's the ESV. So yep. that's totally fine. So there he's going to focus on what person are we talking about? Go ahead. It, dialogue with me real oh. quick. What, what person is he talking about? The son. What is the point of the text? That he's superior to the angels. Perfect. Okay, so we've hit two. Now here's the harder question. When does the son do this? Is this the eternal son? Is that the incarnate son? Or is that the exalted son? Well, if I go back to verse three, mm -hmm. it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So then it should be what? The exalted. Bingo. There it is. So what, what, how he's using that text is an attempt to show that when we read Christological texts, that it's necessary to know when does this occur, of what person, and to what end. So you just did Athanasian exegesis. <laughs> Go. Uh, uh, Aaron, did you have something? Yeah. Um, what's really interesting is the literal versus allegory, like uh, criticisms. It, it wouldn't come out. Like, I think he would still see them as readers of scripture without the literal bent. Um, often Origen will use literal as an anti-Jewish polemic. It was Jews who read literal, but Christians read spiritual. Uh, why? Second Corinthians three, the letter of the law kills, but what? The spirit of the law gives life. Right, so they would use that sort of as an exegetical paradigm. Literal readings lead to death, but I, I don't see Cyril making the argument of Arians are reading literal. See that argument? Not that it's not there. It's just the, the the arguments that he's making. They're they're different types of argument than is is it literal or non literal? Go, go ahead. Okay, good. Um, Jared or Jonah, did you have something? Okay. I would, okay. My question was, maybe, maybe you said it, maybe I didn't understand, maybe I had to yeah. do combating the, the Arians, but the, um, yeah. the time piece, that was important yep. because that was com combating Arianism or there's something else to that too as well? No, it's going to combat Arianism because what do we do with Proverbs 8? In, in an Arian or in an Athanasian reading of Proverbs 8, it's talking about two time periods of the sun his eternal begottenness, and his incarnation. Arians would read that and say, no, 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 His creation is also eternal. So they, they compound the two events. Yep, okay. Let's keep, let's keep rolling because I'll, I'll hit on that. So following such a comment about the rule, uh, let me know if I want to go to this one. Yes. In uh, orations, or uh, yeah, uh, oration against the Arians. What page? Six. There we go. Uh, Athanasius uses Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 to ground the tripartite rule in the scriptures up to this point. The threefold rule has been a general way to speak of different chiroi in general and less about Christology. Now he speaks more poignantly about the Son. Quote, such has been the state of mind under which Christ's enemies have fallen into their exacerbable heresy. For had they known the person and the subject and the season, get this, of the apostles' words, what type of authorship does he ascribe to? We're talking about Hebrews 1. Paul. Paul. <laughs> Just to throw that out there. <laughs> yeah. uh, the apostles' words, they would not have expounded upon the Christ divinity of what belongs to his manhood, nor in the folly have committed to so great an act of irreligion. 
So in other words, the tripartite rule properly ascribes what belongs to divinity, what uh, is ascribed to his manhood. He mentions the threefold rule to discern between the time of the sun's economy and to warn, uh, to warn against Arians who apply human features to the divine sun. He limits the description of the sun's divinity during the incarnation, and after quoting Hebrews 1 in full, he regards the following, quote, It appears then that the apostles' words make mention of that time when God spoke unto us by his son, and when did purging of sins take place, and when did he become Athanasius restricts the win of the apostles' words as during the economy of the sun. And while Athanasius lists the terms in a different order, he first inquires of the kairos of the text to warrant a few comments about the apostle on. Okay. Uh, Athanasius then begins Oration 2 by quoting Proverbs 8.22. Go and look that up. And Hebrews 3, 2, to discuss the Father and the Son's eternal relations. How can the Son be eternal if he is originate with the Father's creative work? And once more, turning to Hebrews 3, Athanasius displays the time and the purpose of the text. Quote, but further, since the drift... Also of the context is orthodox, showing the time and the purpose to which this expression points. I ought to show from it also how the heretics lack reason. That is, by considering as we have done above the occasion when it was used and for what purpose. Athanasius, by noting the when of Hebrews 3, delimits the topic and what is discussed. The apostle is not commenting on the eternal essence or generation of the sun, but rather he mentions the time of the sun's economy. Aaron, the high priest, becomes a typological marker of the sun's economy. Athanasius points to the win of the sun assuming the role of high priest. As Aaron was not born a high priest, he became high priest in the process of time. Athanasius notes that it is so for the sun. While the Son existed in the beginning with the Father, John 1, 1, the Father willed for ransoms to be paid for all. As a result, the Son was robed with humanity like Aaron put on his robe. While the analogy might pose some problems, he still affirms the Son as eternal. He comments upon the Son assuming the features of humanity similar to Aaron becoming high priest. What is problematic Christologically with him putting on flesh like a rib? It's Nestorianism. This is, but it is before Nestorians, right? Nestorianism, as a crass way of saying it, it's God in a bod. Right? That would, that's essentially what he just argued for. That is, it's bad Christology. So that's why I posed, even though the analogy still has problems. The time of the incarnation serves as the fulcrum of the son typologically mirroring Aaron in the time of his priesthood. In orations against Arians 2, Athanasius denotes the two conditions of the son similar to Aaron. When he becomes Aaron in the flesh, the son still assumes the eternal nature. Quote, in the same way it is possible in the Lord's instance also to understand a right. He did not become other than himself on taking the flesh, but being the same as before, he was robed in it, in the expressions he became and was made, but not be understood as if the word, considered as word, were made, but that the word, being creator of all, afterwards was made. High priest, by putting on a body, which was originate and created, and such as he can offer for us. Athanasius' exegesis of these Hebrew texts and his use of the tripartite rule hinges upon the two seasons of the sun, the sun eternal and the sun incarnate. Questions so far?
Questions so far? Anybody on the screen? Questions so far? Chris, Jared, we're doing all right. Darren, we're doing all right. Okay, good. Good, good, good. Um, let's see, where do I want to get to? Where do I want to get to? Where do I want to get to? Yep, there we go. I'm going to read the conclusion to this section. Yada, 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 yada. Finally, Athanasius observes this tripartite rule in relation to Proverbs 8. That was the argument we just skipped over, Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 3. Kairos of the text quite regularly corresponds to two different seasons of the sun, sun eternal, sun incarnate. Whereas Athanasius lists the rules in order of Kairos, Prosopon, and this is where he's inconsistent. Pragma, pri, uh, pre, Kreia, Dionia. Uh, the application of such a rule begins with Kairos as the initial step, and then subsequent comments can be reordered or the subsequent components can be regarded. From these three examples, Athanasius appears to use kairos and posipon more regularly than the third component. Okay, any questions? Hopefully what this does show is that patristic exegesis is not only complex, but I do want to suggest that it's an attempt to make sense of text. And it's just their version of doing so. Their version of doing so. Seems like the Storianism might have been unavoidable. Since Part of the exegesis and Nestorianism are like two hands in a glove. Yeah. So Cyril then comes along and says, we're not talking about two sons when we talk about uh, part of the talking about the single sun and indivisible nature in the hypostatic union, but we're still trying to make sense of why can the sun have fatigue, right? The sun's fatigue corresponds to its human nature. But yeah, Nestorianism is through, through totally going to come as, come as a result of some of this part of the movements. It's good, I'm glad you picked up on that. Uh, anybody on the screen? Any final questions? All right. Any final questions out here? So it would be extremely problematic then to try to look back at those people who are doing everything they can to make sense of of the extreme complexity in Christology that we've had now two thousand years, and other people had five hundred or seven hundred or a thousand years to sort of work through and have councils to look back and say heresy. Exactly. And I don't think Athanasius was doing that. Like you saw the glimpse. Like you just. As Aaron puts on a robe, so the sun puts on, whoa, okay, it, it's analogous, mm -hmm. right? So at that point, just admit the analogy and then it's, it's, I don't think that fully reflects Athanasian Christology. Would it be okay to say that what they were doing is trying to emphasize, like we need to take um, into consideration the concept of time and season when we interpret? Yes, very much so. That is very true. That right there is very true. Uh, Athanasius picks it up from somewhere else, but it's really vague where he picks it up. Athanasius really develops it. Cyril then kind of jumps over a couple of generations, jumps back to Athanasius and wants to reuse it. So Ath Cyril tries to um, revitalize this tripartite Athanasian and you hit it on its head. Wait, what you just said right there. That's good. Like when we are trying to um, understand the nature and purpose of Christ, yeah. we need to consider time. I think so. Like let's let's now think of constructive theology. Let's now do retrieval. What is necessary and what is good. I actually think that the I think Cyril's version is a little bit better than Athanasian, Athanasius's version. Cyril is willing to anchor the time in the three epics of the sun. And every time he talks about the three epics, run straight to Philippian 2. Philippian 2 is an anchor for him when he talks about the three seasons of the sun. That is an anchor for it. I actually think that that's helpful when we're doing exegesis. So then, when we're looking at John 17, and he says, I'm going to be elevated back up, we, we, we have to realize that, that we're in epic 2. It's not epic one and not epic three. So something is proper to epic two that is not then proper to epic one or epic three. 
But then at the same time, the eternal song is beyond time. Yes. So yes. Yep. 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 You have the sun, eternal, divine. Epic one, epic two, epic three. The divine say, stays immutable. What happens in epic two? Adds a human nature. What happens in epic three? He retains the human nature, but it's now a glorified human nature. So in each of the three epics, the sun is a little bit different. I hate saying that. Because if I say different, it now erases mutability. Divine nature stays the yeah. same on all three, right? But his relationship to humanity is different in all. So keep in mind, I'm trying to articulate Cyrilline Christology, and I'm not trying to step into VO2 Christology. <laughs> but I'm just trying to understand what, what does this apocalypse Jesus thing do theologically? I think that's what's happening. So they were saying that human nature of Christ is not eternal. It's not eternal at all. No, and only. Saying. Confined to Epic 2, the middle of Philippians 2. Yeah. Like we would think as part of his nature, it would be always there. As part of his nature divine, it's been added. So this is why when we talk about the incarnation, we always talk about humanity as an added nature, not a part of his eternal nature. Human nature is not eternal. It has not always been. No. Yes, right. It will always be now in eternity future, but it's not that's not really fast yet. There was a time when Jesus was not, but not when the sun was not. Bingo. That's exactly that's right. That's how the our text would put it. Yeah. Yep, that's exactly right. There was a time when Jesus was not, but there is never not a time when the sun was not. That's exactly right. Isn't an epoch three is also eternal as well? Say that again. In epoch three is also eternal. Yep, right here. Yep, glorified human, this is eternal. So, Epic 1, Epic 3, there's a lot of overlap. Epic 2, there's very little overlap. In Cyrilean Christology. Throw that back to that. <laughs> okay, let's go ahead and call it a day. Thank you for a great class. Thank you for a great class. Darren, Joe, good to see you. Chris and Daniel, good to see you. Jared, Matt, Jonah, good to see you. Have a great week. <laughs>